Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Hipper Connects, where we provide voice to those with rare or challenging diseases and illnesses, the providers working to treat them, their supporters, and healthcare thought leaders. Hi, my name is Destiny Wins, an intern at Nexus 8 International. Our product, Hipra, is a medical knowledge sharing device that supports tech collaboration amongst healthcare providers when challenging or difficult cases arise. Today, I have the pleasure to introduce Diana Gray. Diana is the CEO and president of the Hydrocephalus Association, whose mission is to not only find a cure for hydrocephalus, but to improve the lives of those who are impacted as well. Hi, Diana, and thank you for joining me. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Awesome. So I wanted to start off this conversation with learning a little bit more about hydrocephalus. Can you provide an overview of what hydrocephalus is and about how many people are diagnosed with this disease? Sure, absolutely. So one of the things that I think is important to share about hydrocephalus is that it can happen to anyone at any time. So a lot of times people think it's babies only, and certainly there are um, babies who are born Uh, with hydrocephalus, but it can happen to anyone through a traumatic injury. It can happen to um, folks who are elderly and get something called normal pressure hydrocephalus. And we can talk about that a bit later as well. But um, basically in the United States, there are a million people who have hydrocephalus. And on the pediatric side, there are one in 770 babies who will develop hydrocephalus in their first year, which is about 5,000 babies a year. And internationally, there are 400,000 cases of pediatric hydrocephalus each year. So very big international problem, uh, particularly in countries where there aren't great treatment options. And so the the uh, prognosis is not as good if you don't have access to good medical care. But basically, um, I think this is a condition that not many people know about, and yet it's more common than people think. Yes, I'm glad you mentioned that because um, here we are interviewing associations that deal with rare diseases. And I saw that you were a NORD member organization, and that's why I reached out. Um, I'm a bit curious about the experiences of people with diagnosed with hydrocephalus. You mentioned that some people may struggle to find treatments. Is that necessarily difficult in the U.S. or you may explain the difference internationally as well? Sure. Yes, it can be difficult to find treatment. And I should say what hydrocephalus is, is it's a uh, it's an an overaccumulation of cerebral spinal fluid in the brain. It happens in the ventricles or the cavities of the brain. And that CSF um, gets to the point where it cannot escape. It needs better, it needs a way to drain. And so that creates pressure that builds up into the drain to the brain. And that, that causes a need for a shunt to treat it so that the CSF can be diverted to other parts of the body. So that means brain surgery. So this leads into your question. If you need to have a neurosurgeon take care of you for this condition, then you need to be somewhere where you can have access to good medical care. 
And so that creates an access issue. The other access issue in the United States is for this, this population of elderly folks who have something called normal pressure hydrocephalus. And this condition, um, we don't necessarily know um, the cause of it, but it has the same symptoms in terms of the, uh, the difficulty in, um, in diverting CSF in the brain. And so oftentimes the symptoms look like Parkinson's because the individual may have trouble with gait or it can look like Alzheimer's because it creates a dementia, dementia types of symptoms. Um, and then the third symptom is it, it has urinary incontinence. So if you're in your 80s, for example, some of those symptoms may look to a neurologist like a lot of other things. And you may not do an MRI and see those enlarged ventricles in the brain. And so sometimes these patients who are elderly get diagnosed with something that if it were properly diagnosed could be treated because normal pressure hydrocephalus or NPH can be treated with this brain surgery through a shunt. And so that's the, the access issue, right? Uh, is the challenge of people not getting the right diagnosis. And it's heartbreaking because um, so often um, someone will not get the diagnosis because they're going doctor to doctor to try to get better. And, and or they don't know that it's NPH and they think, well, I have Alzheimer's and I'm, I'm getting worse. And they may find out when it's too late before treatment can help. Mm -hmm. And so that's a huge access issue and an awareness issue for us in the United States. Whereas on the pediatric side, you know, if you're born and you have a brain bleed or you have a brain infection, that's gonna be known right away. And it's, it's very scary and very traumatic for families, but the good thing is there is a treatment. And so that baby will get treated right away. And so there will be concerns around that and, and, um, and challenges because it's a, it's a brain surgery for a child, but access is not the same issue for pediatric cases as it is for adults. I hope that answers the challenges and in, in, in other countries, for pediatric cases as well. If you don't have access to good medical care or a surgeon, it can be difficult to get treated. Oh, wow, that was very interesting. And I'm really glad that you brought it up that some symptoms may lead to different diagnosis. And immediately when you said that, I thought about HIPRAT and the fact that we are a collaborative technology amongst healthcare providers. So truthfully, if someone that was using HIPAA knew a lot more about hydrocephalus, they would be able to say, well, are they displaying these symptoms? Maybe it's not Alzheimer's or maybe it's not Parkinson's of what you might believe. And so with that, um, I'm a bit curious. You mentioned that for elderly people, it might be a bit different. So with families, I know you meant I know that the Hydrocephalus Association has supportive care. So what about like emotional or physical tools on that? Yes, um, we, we definitely try to provide um, opportunities for support in that area too. We have a mindfulness course that we offer to help people um, who want to deal with some of the, um, the, just the neuropsychological challenges that come from having a condition that affects your brain. Um, could be depression, it could be 
just, you know, learning disabilities in those kinds of areas. And all of those things cause stress. If you're trying to get a job or you're trying to deal with school and you have this challenge in learning. Um, so mindfulness is one course that we offer. We also um, have community networks in, across the United States and they've actually been um, thriving during the pandemic because we're all on Zoom now. And so there are no geographic boundaries. People can join and we have a group for um, young adults. We have a teens group. We have a group of NPH uh, folks. And then we have some that are still kind of geographic oriented, but they're on Zoom now. So those are really growing. That opportunity to connect with someone who can share your journey and, and talk with you about it and say, well, here's what I did, or yeah, I totally get that. And just to offer support is invaluable. So that's another um, program we offer. We also have something called peer support volunteers. So particularly if you're newly diagnosed and you've never met anyone with hydrocephalus before, let's say you're a parent, it's your baby and you're terrified you know, my baby's just had brain surgery and you have an opportunity to meet another parent who's been through this to offer you support as well. So we do try to, to tap into various areas and we certainly do webinars on different areas of support and need. And then we also have this incredible national conference called HA Connect that happens every other year. We just had it in this year in Austin, Texas, and it was probably one of our best ever, um, at least based on the reviews and the doctors who presented. But it's a great opportunity for people with hydrocephalus and their families to meet the experts in care. So there were more than 75 sessions over three days. And uh, you can meet scientists because there are research components. And more importantly, you get to meet other people who are living with the condition. And that's really the heart of our conference is bringing people together so they can feel like they're not alone in this. Yes, I absolutely love that such a inviting and communicative space was created. Um, with that being said, I wanna change the conversation a little bit, just a tad. So I wanted to know a little bit more about you. What drives your interest in hydrocephalus specifically? Well, I think it's, it's easy to get hooked um, on hydrocephalus because it's so clear what the need is and what we need to do. I've spent my career in important health um, causes, starting with HIV and AIDS um, back when there was only one treatment. So that was clearly something I could be passionate about. And then juvenile diabetes. I have a son with type one diabetes and coming to the hydrocephalus association, I could relate to parents who are terrified about their child having a condition um, that could be life-threatening. And so it was easy for me to get hooked and say, hey, I can really use my skills and talents to help support this mission. Um, it's the number one cause for brain surgery in children. How can you not want to change that? And so that's what drives my passion is how can we find better treatments or one day a cure that would decrease um, invasive procedures like brain surgery. So that's an easy one. I'm glad you feel so passionate. And I think immediately when you were talking, I thought about empathy and how important that is, especially in a situation, not only where it involves kids, but just people understanding and being able to have people to talk to and navigate 
their daily lives with. Um, so thank you for sharing that. That was absolutely lovely. I was also thrilled to learn that the Hydrocephalus Association is very involved in funding research and it advocates on behalf of the hydrocephalus community. So with that being said, I want to know if there's any way that students or anyone else interested can take part in the Hydrocephalus Association. I do remember you talking about educational um, in the educational and I guess like other supportive resources. So it's okay if that falls into that same category as well. Oh, sure, sure. No, we we welcome volunteers and uh, in many aspects of our organization and students in particular. We have a really cool internship called the Ralph Kistler Research Award um, that uh, people, you know, students who have an interest in medicine or science can apply for. It's very competitive. And that gives someone an, an ability to work closely with our national director of research on that. We also um, have many students who we give awards to who are also interested in research and they get to come to our national conference if they're awarded and present a poster on their work. We also have um, students that just want to do a summer internship with us who can come and be involved. And then, of course, volunteering. We need volunteers who want to engage in fundraising, come to our walks. We need volunteers who want to be advocates. You know, we have an advocacy component to our mission, and that involves a lot of different aspects from making sure that that there are no pieces of legislation that could be harmful to people with disabilities in general and or specific to hydrocephalus. Um, another challenge with access that we didn't touch on earlier is um, transition care. And this is something we share in common with pretty much any pediatric disease where at one time you might not have survived long enough to get the care you need, but Obviously, with treatments and, and the invention of the shunt in the 1950s, there are treatments now for hydrocephalus, but the challenge is there aren't providers that necessarily want to see those transitioning kids as adults. And mm -hmm. that's a real access problem for us and many other pediatric conditions. And so we're doing advocacy around that to try to make sure there are more funds for transition care and to help train providers on that adult side. So there's someone to receive them when they transition. So that's a huge issue for us on the advocacy side. Um, and then what else are other ways you can get involved? I had some other notes and I'm, um, no, you can give. That was the other one. You can give, you can support through giving a gift and no, no um, gift is too small. Every dollar helps us to reach our mission. And a hundred percent of our funding comes from donors, individuals, corporations, and foundations. We do not receive government funding, even though we advocate and support scientists who then can go on with our funding and get NIH funding or Department of Defense funding, we raise every dollar every year. And so again, it doesn't matter. Grassroots fundraising helps us and, um, and also large gifts. So giving, advocating, volunteering, um, internships, there are lots of ways to become involved. And our website, you'll probably share this too, but it's www hydro a sock h y d r o a s s o c for hydrocephalus association.org 
So it's a great uh, way to, to learn more about our mission and find ways to volunteer. And there's a get involved button right there on the top of the page. Awesome. Okay, so as once again, it is hydroassoc.org. So if anyone, one of our listeners would want to get involved, please feel, feel free to do so. Um, so quick question. When you imagine the future of hydrocephalus and its research, what do you hope to see? I imagine and hope in the near future that we can, and I say near future, 10, 20 years, that we can develop better treatments that don't require um, brain surgery. So we're very grateful that the shot was invented in the 1950s because it saves people's lives, but it also has a high failure rate. So in the first couple of years of getting a shot in children, the failure rate can be 50%. And so that means that, you know, children are going to have multiple revisions and it happens with adults too. The failure rate isn't quite as high, but it isn't a perfect technology. While it does a great job diverting that CSF throughout the body and saving someone's life, there are complications with it. So we are funding research right now. It's in the early animal model stages of research, but we're funding research on several compounds that could potentially divert that CSF in other ways, or perhaps uh, drug therapies that could prevent hydrocephalus after a brain bleed. So there are other opportunities out there that we're looking at. We're also looking at funding research in uh, better shunts, shunts that don't occlude, because that's the number one reason. I mean, infection could be an issue, but more often than not, a shunt will fail because the holes in the shunt occlude and then the the shunt stops working. So if we could find a shunt that wouldn't occlude and block, then we would reduce the number of brain surgeries. So my vision is that we have better treatments that are less invasive in the next 10, 20 years for patients. Yeah, I definitely see that as a biology major. um, When you talk about research, I see a need for that. And oftentimes, if I really was not having a conversation with you, I feel like me as a student, I would have known that such an important or such an impactful research is going on. And so thank you for sharing that. Um, I have one final question for you. And I want to know, once again, what are the ways that we could spread awareness about hydrocephalus and hydrocephalus association? And I think you touched on that within um, our conversation so far, and I love that you did. But I want that to be the closing statement to really let our listeners know what they can do. Sure. I think that we definitely have to get the word out. We work every day, and and you've met our national director of marketing communications. You know, her her job is to help us create awareness about this condition. So interviews like this help us get the word out. Um, Sharing about hydrocephalus on social media helps us get the word out. We have um, an awareness month every September where we push every day on social media and ask people to um, share their stories. But I think that um, without others helping us, through sharing their experiences with us, this or interviews 
like this, it's difficult for us to get the awareness out because as you said, it's a, it's a rare disease in terms of what's known about it, but the cases are not rare. And so we need people to know and, and awareness is critical for particularly those adults that I'm talking about who may have a treatable dementia that, um, they may not get diagnosed in time because the awareness is just not there. So we work every day to increase that. And so more people helping us would make a huge difference. And I thank you so much for giving us this opportunity today to talk about what we're doing at the Hydrocephalus Association. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences. And I'm happy to listen and I'm happy to share your passion about Hydrocephalus and the Hydrocephalus Association. So... Lastly, I would like to thank our listeners for joining on this episode of Table Connects. Have a great day, Diana. Thank you so much. <laughs>